Well, let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 6, please. If you'd like a title for this message, I've called it Finding Courage and Rest. And we come to a familiar passage, but I think one that in the familiarity, we sometimes don't really understand what it's on about or what is really going on here in the context of Scripture. So John chapter 6, and let's read together from verses 1 through 15. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they to do for so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather around your word, we do so knowing that your word is not just a fall on empty ears. But your word has implications. Your word speaks to our souls. It's like a sword. And so, Lord, would this sword then do its work today in our lives? Would we be encouraged? Would we be refreshed? Would we all leave finding courage and rest for the road ahead in our lives? Lord, you are good. You are sovereign. So have your way amongst us in your amazing grace. Amen. The question I've got for us this morning as we start this message is simply this. Is God enough? Is God alone enough for you? Is he enough for you as you cry out to him in the midst of your circumstances? Maybe even difficult circumstances. Is he enough for you if your circumstances never change? Is he enough for you if you never get the job or the career that you'd hoped for? Is he enough for you if you never actually work through the plan for your life that you think is what God is calling for you to do and is what you want? Is he enough for you if you never get married? Is he enough for you if you never have children, if you never have more children, 
even though it be the desire of your heart? Is he enough for you in the circumstances of being single, even though you desire to be married? Will he be enough for you if that never changes? Is he enough for you in the circumstances of your illness? And as you cry out to him for grace, is he enough? Is he enough for you if you never fully recover from your illness? If it's something you live with. Something like Paul with the thorn in the flesh that God has you live with for the rest of your days. You know, in our hearts, I think we all know how we'd like to answer, don't we? We all want to say in this moment, yes, he's, he's enough. I'm sure he's enough. We all want to be like Asaph in Psalm 73, who says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, I think for all of us, we want to be able to be like that, don't we? And say, you know what, whatever happens in my life, Lord, you're enough for me. I believe in you. You are my portion forever and I will find delight in you. And yet the truth is, if you're like me and if you're like most Christians, sometimes that can be a battle, can't it? It can be difficult to actually feel that and get that in our lives. For as surely as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall, Job tells us. Jesus himself says man is born to trouble. Troubles happen and I think it's in the midst of our troubles sometimes then that we can find there is a battle going on in our minds and in our spirits, and in our faith, to really to understand and bottom out, can I, can I trust God in this? Can I find courage in this? Can I find rest in this? Because this is hard. There's a battle in our mind going on, and a battle in our faith going on. And that's why I'm so grateful then to John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Because it's in this chapter that God helps us see that there is without question an object to our faith. He wants to cultivate and strengthen our, our, our faith in him. And God wants to cultivate then and encourage the truth that we can truly find courage and rest in him, whatever our circumstances, whether there's any changes or whether there's not. And so here in this text, I think we have a passage that is simply about this. Listen, that Jesus is alone, alone is always enough. Because he's all sufficient for our every need. Do you get it? Jesus alone is always enough. Whatever the circumstances. Because he's all sufficient for our every need. See, all of these events that are recorded here in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, this whole premise of Jesus feeding the 5,000, it's one of the few things that is actually recorded in all the Gospels. And it is recorded in all the Gospels because the early Christians just considered this part of a massive thing to validate the truth that Jesus really is God. And so apart from the resurrection, this is the only other miracle that it actually features in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. It's no surprise that it features because it is indeed a, a massive piece of validation, isn't it? See, these texts, the Gospels, would have been around the Mediterranean region simply 40 years after they were written. So many of these people would have still been alive. So it says 5,000 men. That's just men. So plus their wives, plus their kids. So the poly would have been potentially around 15,000 people there. So here's the scene. All these people start to eat. 40 years later, all these manuscripts start to come around about what happened. That's a lot of people. And that's a lot of people that could have put their hand up and said, hang on. That isn't the way it happened. We all took our lunch. You know, there's a lot of people there that could have contradicted what was happening, but nobody did. 
Because there's people that were there and they were saying, yeah, that was amazing. And that happened. So it was classed in the first century as something of major importance because it validated the truth that Jesus really is God. But John isn't using it just for that way. He's using it not only to validate, he's using it to inspire faith. And so under the inspiration of God, he pens us a story to inspire that faith. He pens us a story where we can learn that by God's grace, we can cultivate courage and rest for the road ahead in our lives. Why? Because Jesus alone is always enough. Because he's all sufficient for our every need. And in this story, then, there are really just two things that I think John wants to communicate to us about Jesus. Two things about Jesus that then in turn cultivate the courage and rest that we need. So it's not a complicated message. It's that easy. But it can have a profound effect on our lives if we just truly believe it. So here's the first point. Number one, the all-sufficient mercy and compassion of Jesus. It's so easily missed. It's appallingly so easily missed. And yet verses 1 through 5 are without question all about the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ. See, in Mark's account of this same story, Mark tells us that by this point, Jesus is very tired. You may have been wondering, what actually happens between chapter 5, verse 47, and 6, verse 1? Is it literally the next day? And it's not. When you read Mark, you realize Jesus has been doing loads of things. Okay, he, by his grace, has been healing people. He's been performing miracles. In his life, he's been giving himself to baptizing people and aiding people and discipling people and teaching people. And clearly, as you read in the book of Mark, he is now tired. He's exhausted about what is taking place. And so he, along with his disciples, get into a boat and they decide that, you know what, let's go across the Sea of Galilee, the great lake, in effect, that was in Galilee. And let's go over to the other side where there's a few more desolate places because we're just tired and we need a rest. It's a good idea. Bad news is the crowd spotted the dastardly plan. And so as Jesus sets off in this boat and goes to the other side, all of the crowd begin running around the lake, which is exactly what happens. And so by the time Jesus gets to the other side of the sea, there are 5,000 men, plus their wives, plus their kids, all waiting for him. Welcome! We're pleased you're here, Savior. I mean, can you imagine the scene? He is tired. I would have been tempted as I pull into shore to think, Oh my goodness, they're all there. Okay, back boys, reverse, reverse. You just think, leave them be, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. And yet Jesus in grace, full of compassion on them, doesn't do that. It says in Mark that he realized that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he loves them. And so even though he's tired, he sucks it up, and he gets off, and he starts to communicate to them about the gospel pulls them all into a large grassy area and he starts to tell them again about salvation, about his goodness, about the fact that he is the way and the truth and the life. He begins to communicate to them. He is affected and wants to care for them in the major issue of their salvation. But as the night grows old, what you also find is he is also caring compassionate to them in the minor situations as well. He wants to care for them. He wants to care for them because they're They're hungry. They need some food. You know, if I was one of the disciples, I would have said, Jesus, I've got a better idea. Why don't we tell them to go home? It's been a long day. They've all got homes to go for, and we haven't got any food. So just 
tell them to, you know, clear off. Thanks for coming. I was tired before I arrived, but now I'm even more tired. So all the best. God bless you. Please go somewhere else. But he doesn't. Jesus, full of compassion, wants to care for them in the major issue of their salvation. But he also wants to care for them in the minor issue of their hunger. See, they are not starving, okay? Let's not feel sorry for the crowd. They are not starving in this moment. This is not a picture of Ethiopia. It's not taking place. They're not walking to Jesus just absolutely malnourished. I can't, can't go on. They're not doing that. They've missed a couple of meals. That's it. I do that all the time. And I'm sure many of you do too. I mean, I, I get so busy. So sometimes I don't have breakfast and I don't have lunch. And I get to dinner and I say to her, I'm starving. She's like, why? I'm like, well, I don't think I've eaten today. I, that's not uncommon in the way I live my life. Maybe it's not for you. Some of you are thinking, I could never miss a meal. You're the one of the 5,000. That's the way it works. But they're not really starving. They're not going to die in any moment. They're just hungry. They're getting hungry. It's been a long day for them. And yet Jesus doesn't want to send them home. He wants to care for them. He wants to care for them right now. Why? Why does he want to do that? Well, because the Savior's mercy and compassion is all sufficient. He wants to care for them in the big things. Their salvation. But he also wants to care for them in the little things because he's bothered about the little things too. They're important to him because he loves them. And here's the implication for us today because this is life-changing. The implication is this. In the same way he was all-sufficient then, he's all-sufficient today because he still cares today. He hasn't changed. It's not like Jesus was like that then, but he's not like that now towards you. He's very bothered about you. He's intimately bothered about you. He's still the same today. Does he care about the big things in the world? Does he care about the people that are starving around the world? Does he care about Syria? Does he care about Sudan? Of course he does. He's intimately bothered in all of creation as the creator of all. Is he bothered about the big things in your lives? Is he bothered about the things that you are walking through that cause you at different times to weep? Yes. He's intimately bothered about those things. Here's the point. He's not only bothered about those things. He's bothered about the small things in your lives too. The little things. The details. He's important. He's caring for them because they're important to him too. And the reality is this has been playing out in Christianity for hundreds and hundreds of years. First of all, in Israel as God's chosen people. And now in the church as Christians. This has been taking place for hundreds of years. Just this week I was being inspired again by George Mueller. How many of you have heard of George Mueller? Okay, all three of you. Well, for the rest of you, let me tell you about George Mueller. George Mueller was born on the 27th of September, 1805. And he was a German-born Christian evangelist. And he's very famous because he owned and ran the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. In the 1800s, there wasn't a lot of government handouts. So people that were orphans were just basically on the street. And this guy who loved Jesus set up an orphanage that throughout his lifetime cared for over 10,000 orphans. That's a massive achievement. But in care, he gave his whole life to that. He built this thing, used every penny he had to build the orphanages and build the homes. And then he gave himself free of charge just to care for them. And that's what he did every day of his life, care for all these orphans that were in his care. And yet the thing that stands out about this guy was his confidence in God to care for him in all areas of life, both the big things and the little things. 
And as you read then his biographies and you, you check out his story of his life, you just hear story after story after story of God's provision for him. As God was caring for the little things. I read one this week and it just so moved me again. I'd read it before, but every time. And it's just this situation how one night, basically they didn't have any food in the entire orphanages. So the kids were getting hungry. And so he sits them all down and, and, and the different people are saying, well, what do you want us to do? And he said, you know what? Let's set up the tables as normal. And let's put the plates out. Let's put the knives and forks out. And let's put the drink cups out. And they're like, well, we haven't got anything. I know. But let's do it anyway. So they start doing this and they set the whole thing up and they all sit down. He gets all these kids to sit down at the table. And then he just prays and gives thanks and says, Lord, we don't have any food, but we trust you because you are the provider. And so, Lord, we thank you in advance for the food because we know you are good and you are gracious. Amen. Knock at the door. Goes to the door, opens the door. It's the baker. And the baker has got numerous loaves of leftover bread, this individual there. He can't understand, but he doesn't really care why. And he says, you know what? I've got all this bread left over. I I want you to have it as an orphanage. At that very point, as they look over their shoulder, they hear an almighty crash. And it was basically a milk cart outside that had crashed into the side of the road. So they rush over to this guy to try and help him. They try and care for this fellow because he's clearly in pain because his milk cart has just crashed. And they care for him and he says, he says, listen, I'm fine, but the milk is ruined now. There's no way I'm going to get it to where it needs to be. You can have it for your orphanage. So in they now walk with the bread and with the milk and those guys have a great feed that night. And you just think, I love stories like that. You know, what amazing grace. God caring for the little things because he's bothered. God is intimately bothered about those different things. The kids are hungry and God wants to care. I also heard a story from a, from a fellow pastor recently. This guy was in Indonesia. And in Indonesia, he, got to the, he basically ran out of money and he needed $50 at the end of his trip for the rest of what he would need throughout that trip. So he goes to the bank and he graciously asks for $50 and they think he's a crook, basically, because, you know, who are you? What's your name? So they bring him into a back room in this, in this Indonesian bank and he's pretty sure he's going to die. And so he just cries out to God, Lord, what am I going to do? I need $50 and I trust that you're going to provide for me. But I'm just locked in a room in Indonesia and this isn't looking good. Lord, where are you? What are you doing? And it really senses at that point that the Lord's asking him a question just in terms of, son, who do you think I am? He says, well, you're, you're, you're a father. You're good. You're gracious. You're the provider of all things. He says, well, son, who are you? I'm, I'm your child and, and I want to trust you. And at that point, he realized, you know what? Even though this, this situation is looking distinctly bleak, I can trust God because he's going to care for me. In walks a woman, straight up. Walks a woman with an envelope. and says, I just believe that God's called me to give you this. She gives him an envelope. It's got $50 in it. And I say, you can go now. Unbelievable. But that is the way God works. You know, I think so t- sometimes we can be so small in our view of God. Of, oh, everything's got to be natural. Like, God is supernatural. God is massive and splendid in his nature to us. And God cares not only for the major things in our lives. He cares for the little things. And the truth is, folks, if we were just to have eyes to see, we'd see that he does this nearly every day of our lives. Everything you have is a gift of his grace. Every provision, some things that we just take for granted, they're all post-it notes of his grace. 
See, if you want to be a joyful Christian, part of the trick of that is just start noticing the post-it notes. Just start realizing this isn't just to be taken for granted. These are all expressions of his care, of his power, of his intimate provision and mercy on our lives. The Savior's mercy and compassion, God's mercy and compassion is all sufficient. It's complete. He cares for the big things, but he also cares for the little things. And so can we and should we therefore cry out to him in prayer even for the little things? Absolutely. So I think we can be tempted sometimes as Christians to think, well, God's very busy. You know, he's got a lot on. There's a lot of people he's got to look at, and I'm sure he's saving the world somewhere else at the moment, so I don't want to trouble him with this. You know, I have three kids, and they can be busy too, but I'm never troubled by their requests. I like it because they're my children, and I care. I'm, I'm bothered for them. And it's like that with God. We can and should cry out to him for the little things too because he's interested. He's bothered. If a God can feed 5,000 people when he could have just sent them home, he's bothered about all of our needs. He's bothered about all of the care that we need in our lives. And so can we trust him for both the big things and the little things in our lives? We can, without any doubt. He's trustworthy because he is all-sufficient in his mercy and compassion. But that's not all. Here's here's the second point. The all-sufficient power of Jesus. So it's great to be compassionate, right? But compassion alone could just be big-hearted. But if you're compassionate and powerful, well, that changes everything. And that's exactly what we see in the rest of this story. Let's look at it again at verse 5 and 6. It says, Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread? so that these people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. What a random statement, or at least it can appear that way. Jesus already knew what he was going to do, so why ask the question? Jesus knows full well that in a moment I'm going to perform this amazing miracle, but before I do that, I'm going to pull my disciples to one side, and I'm going to ask them a few questions. Why? Well, it says he did it to test them. He wanted to test them to see whether they had yet grasped that he was all-powerful and that he was not only bothered about situations, but he had the power to change situations and move in situations. Well, unfortunately, the disciples, being like me, they failed. (laughs) The test doesn't go well. And so Philip, you know, Philip, shall we go get some food? Philip's response is this, 200 denarii would not buy enough food for each of them to get a little. He's basically saying, well, I ain't got any money. We haven't got There's no way, Jesus. There's no way that we're going to pull this off. This isn't going to work. Andrew's my favorite response. See, Andrew's response is, is hilarity. It's funny. It's meant to be that way. Andrew is the joker of the disciples. Andrew is the one that in the nights where he gets a bit cold, Andrew's the one, I've got a few gags for you. And this is one of his gags, right? He says, well, there is a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Ha, ha, ha. That's the way it's written. He's like, well, yeah, well, um, I know, I know. There's 5,000 men, plus their wives, plus their kids. Oh, look, here's a packed lunch. This will probably cover it. You know, that's the tone that he's saying. He's like, what are we going to be able to pull off with this bad boy? There's just no way forward, Jesus. He fails. Philip fails. 200 denarii. We haven't got enough money. No, it's not going to work. Andrew, well, haha, five loaves, two fish. Nah, not going to pull off. All the disciples fail. They're all there. 
None of them at any point say, you know what, Jesus, you can probably do something here. They have all seen Jesus turn water into wine, 150 gallons of water into wine. They've all seen that take place. They've all seen Jesus heal an official son. They've all seen Jesus heal people and rebuke demons. They've all seen Jesus already in great power and splendor. And yet in this moment, they don't think once that he can do something about it. They just think, I don't know, not going to work. I don't know, not going to be able to pull this off. (laughs) Do you see? He's testing them. See, it's not that they're wrong to make their calculations, right? That's okay. The problem is their calculations never once take into account the Savior's power. Never once. They never once consider who it is that is with them. Who it is who is powerful. Who is sitting with them in this moment asking them, how are we going to do this? I think to be honest, the more I review that this week, there's a massive lesson for us in there, isn't there? You ever been tempted when your boss calls you in? And you say, and you're aware that this is not looking good. This is probably going to affect me financially. He wants to move me on. You ever been tempted to then rush home and get the budget out and the calculator and never think once to pray? That's exactly what these guys are doing. Here's my problem. I've got to sort it. Illness comes. What do we do? Run to Jesus? Maybe. But first of all, we go on the internet and check out what possible diseases it could be. And then we become our own doctors and we work out our own things that we're going to need because I want to sort it. We don't stop and pray. I'm going to sort it. We start having visa issues. And we want to pray, but before that, we are going to search the internet to, to, exploit, to exploit every piece of advice that could possibly be out there to work out how you can assure that this visa is going to go through. We might pray eventually, but we don't expect God to move in on these things. That's exactly what the disciples are doing. You ever done that? You ever been tempted to just ignore the power of God? even though we hear about him every week. Just think, yeah, but it's not going to happen to me. I've just got to sort this out. Well, the disciples do the same. Eh, failed. Thanks for playing. But then we go to verse 10, and what we realize is that has set up the platform then for the Savior's power. He knew they were going to fail. And so he moves them to one side, and he says, you know what, then, guys, pop yourselves down a moment and watch this. Verse 10. Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. I mean, what an incredibly scene, don't you think? Five barley loaves. Now, sometimes we have Hovis loaves in Britain that are like really big and really juicy. And I often thought of the five loaves as like those, you know, that you could carry them in a suitcase. But actually, they were like scones. They were barley loaves. The point of barley loaves is only poor people had barley loaves because they're so small. They're about, about that big. They were tiny little things. And then basically had two sardines. So he had five little scones and two sardines. That's what he rocked up with here. And yet Jesus says, you know what? Sit him down. He gives thanks over these things. And he starts to distribute them. And as he distributes them, miraculously, they begin to multiply. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to have seen this? I would, 
I would love to see how this looked. I mean, when you go to X Factor or something like that, or you see it on TV, and there's 5,000 people in the queue, can you imagine, okay, there's a little boy here, he's got a packed lunch, five little scones and two sardines. Let me pray over them. Oh, let's start dishing them out. And the whole crowd start to think, this is unbelievable. Everybody's eating to their feast. Jesus, in this moment, quite literally makes a sumptuous feast from insufficient ingredients. He takes something so meager and so poor and makes it majestic and huge and cares for nearly 15,000 people potentially in that room through his power and splendor and majesty. I would have loved to have seen that. I mean, what must it have looked like? You know, he hands out the loaf and he's still got five left. You think, how did you do that? Where did that one come from? Oh, let me see your hands. You know, I, just would have, I would have just been there trying to ask, how, are these things just multiplying in front of their eyes? How does it work? I have no idea. But what I do know is these guys must have been absolutely buzzing about what was taking place. They must have been overwhelmed thinking, this is incredible. There are thousands of us here. Nobody's really had anything. We're all hungry, but now no one's hungry at all. And there's 12 baskets of this stuff left over, 12 large baskets. Such is his majesty and his power. See, over the next few weeks, we're going to see that this has great symbolic significance for us. The bread has great symbolic significance. That's why it's not five cups of soup or something else, because the bread itself, is incredibly significant. Hundreds of years earlier, Israel, God's chosen people, were walking through the wilderness and God himself supplied what from heaven? Bread from heaven. Provided manna from heaven. And then there was a prophetic word all throughout that season of time about the Messiah to come, that one would come and he too would provide bread for the nation. He too would feed the nation with bread. And so what takes place right here is they think this is the one. They understand this is him. This is the Messiah. All of these thousands of people want understand very quickly this is the one. And that's why verse 14 says this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. See, they get it. They understand this is him. This is the one that it was always prophesied about, one that would feed, one that would give bread to the nations. And then he continues in verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to be made king. Why? Because they think this is the one. He withdraws. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This wasn't their time. This wasn't his time. This wasn't the time for them to be brandishing him as king and hailing him as king. He had more work to do. So he withdrew. But they were, they were right. This is the one. And so we're going to discover here over the next few weeks that this passage has great symbolic significance for us. But it also has great face value significance. There's a dual purpose without any question to this. It's not just symbolic. It's face value too. And the face value significance is this. The Savior's power is all sufficient. He can do anything. He's majestic. He can solve problems in a moment. 2,000 years ago, he showed that time and time again through healing people, by walking on water, by raising people from the dead, by raising himself from the dead, by rebuking demons and casting them out. What do we think Jesus is incapable of? He's capable of doing anything. 
His power is majestic. And the truth is, the point that John's trying to get over to us is this power, in the same way that it was all sufficient then, is all sufficient today too. It's all sufficient in your lives. He not only cares for you with compassion and mercy, but his power is sufficient for you. And you see, his power, I think, is, is twofold. Without question, he has the power to change our circumstances, doesn't he? You see that with George Mueller as he's praying and then God just steps in. Okay, here's bread, here's milk. You see that by God's grace with his pastor in Indonesia. Lord, what am I going to do? I need $50. Knock, knock. And it comes. Here it is. You see that. Jesus Christ and God in grace has the power to change our circumstances in a moment. He does. But in his wisdom and sometimes in the mystery for us, he doesn't change our circumstances, does he? Lord, I want to be married, but I'm not. Maybe I never will be. Lord, I'm sick. Would you heal me? No. Why? Sometimes God in his power changes our circumstances. But other times God in his power sustains us in our circumstances. Folks, we need to understand that that is power too. That is also an illustration of his grace and his sustaining power in our lives. George Mueller again. Let me illustrate with him. He was, as I said before, a a man of God, a great man of God. He believed that God could come in and change things in a moment. But God didn't always operate like that with him. He didn't always get the yes he was hoping for. One illustration of that is later on in his years, when his wife was dying. As she was dying and literally wasting away, Mr. Mueller would spend every day on his knees before the Lord, crying out that he would heal her, that he would make her well. But God didn't. He took her home. And Mr. Mueller was devastated. But at the funeral, he turned up and he asked for one hymn in particular. And in the midst of the grief of all that he was going through, he asked for the hymn, One There Is Above All Others. And he asked for it because of this line. Best of blessings, he'll provide us. Naught but good shall e'er betide us. Safe to glory, he will guide us. Oh, how he loves And people said, Mr. Mueller, how how are you managing with this? Because we know how much you loved your wife. We know how much she was your soulmate. She was the one that you you lived for and loved and cared. How, How are you managing to come and sing that hymn? And he simply responded to them, you know, I'm able to sing that hymn because God is sovereign and God is good. You know what, folks? I submit to you that is an expression of the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. Philippians 4 verse 7 simply says that he gives us the grace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. Mr. Mueller was on the receiving end of that in this moment. He was devastated that his wife had been taken. But he understood, not only in his head but in his heart, that God is sovereign and God is good. That is sustaining grace sustaining power. Horatio Spafford, likewise, he wrote one of my favorite hymns, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. But that hymn comes with a wonderful story around it. 
See, in 1871, Mr. Spafford lost absolutely everything financially in the Great Chicago Fire. He was an incredibly wealthy guy. He had opened a law practice that was doing very well, and as a result of that, he closed down the law firm and bought real estate. He lost every piece of real estate because it burnt down in the Great Chicago Fire. In 1873 then, for a bit of respite, he sent his family, his wife and his four dear daughters over to Europe so they could get a rest away from all the difficulties they were facing financially. And what took place is as the boat was going over to England, in the middle of the ocean, it collided with another boat and the boat sank. And some were rescued, but some were not. His wife was rescued. So when she docked in Cardiff, South Wales... She sent a telegram to Mr. Spafford with just two words, saved alone. All four daughters had drowned. All four daughters had been lost. And so Mr. Spafford, obviously, as soon as he hears, decides to travel to the United Kingdom to be with his wife, to comfort her and make arrangements for the funeral and so forth. And as he traveled over to England... As he made his way towards all that was taking place there, he wrote this hymn. Let me find it for you. Listen to this. Imagine the scene. Halfway across the Atlantic. At one specific point, the captain of the guard said, Sir, this is where your daughter's drowned. He went out on deck and he wrote this. When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul though Satan should buffet though trials should come let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. In the chorus, so it is well, it is well. With my soul, with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. That is the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. There is no other explanation. He loved his girls. And as he goes out on deck, he writes to the Lord effectively, and I trust you. Now, folks, these are testimonies that are not only written in history, they're testimonies that are exhibited in our lives too. There are testimonies in this room of the same types of things taking place. I remember Alex and Amy last year. Was it last year or the year before? Last year. And just they went out to a party and there was a barbecue there. And they were all having a barbecue, that's well. But then they, they took away the barbecue. The owners of the property took away the barbecue. And it was over. And the problem was the sand underneath was still red hot. Mary didn't know that. Mary's a, their daughter. And she runs onto the sand and then freezes because it is so hot. And it starts to burn all the skin off the bottom of her feet. So they obviously take her in an ambulance to the hospital and when they get to the hospital, it's clear that, that Mary's going to need to have some skin grafts on her feet. At which point Amy starts having contractions because Boaz has decided now is the time to come. Inconvenient, but that's what boys do. <laughs> and so 
They're facing the potential operation with Mary, but now Amy has got to go to a different hospital to give birth. That's difficult. And that's hard. This is real life. They're hard things to walk through. Should I stay with my, my daughter? Do I go with my wife? Lord, what do I do? And so the life group, I think, just did an outstanding job of caring for them as a couple. And I remember trying to madly call Alex on numerous occasions, and I, and I got, got to him. I said, Alex, what is going on? I'm just hearing all these things. What's taking place? How can we help? How can we serve you? And Alex just said, you know what? God is good to us. And we are experiencing his grace. And I just thought, Lord, thank you for being the good shepherd of Sovereign Grace Church. Thank you for caring for people who I love. But you clearly love even more. That is sustaining grace. And that is the grace of Jesus. That's what he does. I'm involved. Sometimes power to change. Sometimes power to sustain. Remember when we walked through what we did with Josh, when he had his cleft palate operations and then his heart operation, and you think, Lord, why, why don't you just heal him? Just change it. I know you can in a moment. And he never did. But he did sustain us. In those moments as you walk through things like that, you know his grace. You know he's with you. He's giving you strength and courage for the road ahead. There are many present-day testimonies of the power of Jesus Christ, the power to change and the power to sustain. And so, here's my question. Is he enough? Is God alone enough for you? Is he enough for you in your circumstances? Is he enough for you if your circumstances never change? Is he enough for you if you get married? Is he enough for you if you never get married? Is he enough for you if you never have the children that you so desire? Is he enough for you if you never have the role that you desire? Is he alone enough for you? Folks, I want to encourage you. Jesus alone is enough because he's all sufficient for our every need. He's got it all. He is all sufficient in his compassion and mercy for the big things, but also the little things like food. And he is powerful enough to change things in a moment. And if in his sovereign will, because of his goodness and for our goodness and his glory, he does not change the circumstances, he has the power to sustain the power to give grace that surpasses all understanding so that we walk through trials, as James says, even with joy, not because we think the event itself is humorous, but because we know the one who holds us. And we know even in this, I, Lord, I trust you and I, I'm joyful because I'm experiencing you. And I know your nearness in this thing. Listen, folks, if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then I want to encourage you, don't, Let's spend another moment of your life outside the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Don't spend another moment outside of that. See, the Bible is clear that God made us. We didn't just evolve from primordial slime or anything of that nature, but God actually made you. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. And he made you to find your identity and your security and your joy in him. And yet you, like me, 
rejected him. We exchange the creator for the created. And so we just give our lives to all the things of the world. And because of that, we're objects of wrath. Giving ourselves to all the things of the world is what is called his sin. It is rebellion against God, rebellion against the very thing we're made for, namely him. And because of that, we're by nature objects of his wrath. We're cut off from God in our sin. He is holy and we are not. And we can't get back to him in and of ourselves. And we all know it. And yet we all try and find numerous things in the world to give ourselves to so that we'll feel better about stuff. But we all know this is broken. I can't do this. Some people give themselves then to religion, thinking that maybe I can earn my way back. You can't. Some people just give themselves to good deeds, thinking, well, if I can just do lots of good things, maybe that will earn my way back. No, it won't. I'll tell you the way back. It's what this whole book is about. Jesus. Jesus is the only way back. He came 2,000 years ago and died on a cross at Calvary as our substitute. He came all along to say that I've come to seek and save the lost. He came to draw us back to God so that we can once again, through Jesus, find our way back to God and find our identity and joy and satisfaction in him again. He came as your substitute to take on the cross, the wrath of God that you deserved and you had earned. That's why he came for you. And the response then Paul talks about in Romans 10. He says, if you confess you the mouth that Jesus is Lord, namely you repent of your sin and make Jesus Christ truly the king of your life. And if you believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead, i.e. you believe that he died for you, then you will be saved. Some people say to me, you know what, does, does becoming a Christian cost you anything? Well, here's the answer. Becoming a Christian is absolutely free and it will cost you everything. It's both. It is absolutely free to become a Christian. You don't have to pay. You can't earn it. You simply put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And will it cost you everything? Yeah, your whole life. Is it worth it? Every second. Because as you give your whole life away to Jesus, you find the very thing that you were made for. You get concerned that will it be restrictive? It's not restrictive at all. I found life in Christ. My old life was restrictive. Becoming a Christian is free. And it costs you everything. And I want to encourage you to do it. Put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And in this moment then, you will know then the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ as you come under his sovereign care. That changes everything. If you're a believer there, which is most of you in this room, I want to encourage you, live in the good of this. This is for you. Don't let this go in one ear and out the other, but be aware that this is true. Jesus, in the way he pursues you and looks at you and cares for your life, does so with intimate compassion and mercy and all-sufficient care and all-sufficient power. And that changes everything. And so by grace then, would we allow that to be applying in our lives and burnt into our hearts? And would faith then and courage and rest be the theme for our story ahead? Let's pray. Well, Lord, you are so good to us. And in the way you care for us, you don't just care for us generically as if we're this blob of your redeemed people. You care for us by name. Our Lord, as you 
look around the room today, as your eyes go to and fro in the room that is Sovereign Grace, you know each and every name and you can number the hairs on each and every head. Lord, would we then know of your compassion and your grace afresh today? Would we be comforted by that? Would we find rest in that? Would we find confidence in that? Confidence in you. And Lord, for every individual in the room then, would our lives go away changed? Your power is enough to change. Your power is enough to sustain. And your mercy and compassion is pointed at each and every individual in the room. Thank you. You are good. Amen.